Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Mysteries of the Kingdom, with a study in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, and Dr. Newfeld is going to bring us a message entitled, Dealing with Doubt. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now. Many of you remember the words that begin the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher. Everything is meaningless. Now, those are the words of despair. They're words in which a man has doubts. He doubts whether everything that he's doing and living for has any purpose or significance or meaning. Now, if a university professor said those words, well, that might not be so surprising. I mean, neither would it be if it came from the mouth of a, let's say, a politician or a newspaper reporter. And we sometimes hear that kind of language even from a theologian. But when it comes from a preacher, well, that's when everyone stops and says, wow, what does that mean? Because as you and I know, when a preacher starts doubting, well, we wonder whether or not he has deceived everyone, everyone that's listened to him over the years. You know, a very brief time before his untimely death, Lewis Smedes, who was professor of Christian ethics, wrote these lines. He said, sometimes I hang on to faith by my fingernails when the dream of a new world of Jesus' peace and love is more than 2,000 years old and still shows no clear sign of coming true. Anybody's faith can turn to doubt. Wow, can that man be a Christian at all? You know, I think he can. But for that matter, how about you? Have you ever entered into a period of genuine doubt where you doubted all that you have believed? I mean, perhaps you're in such a place today. Maybe you're asking, is God good? Is he there? Is he to be trusted? Is my faith true? And when doubts rush in on you, what should you do about that? I mean, should you bury it or try not to think about it? Should you give in to it? Should you see it as coming from Satan? I mean, is it helpful to doubt or is it simply evil? It was Oz Guinness in his book, God in the Dark. He says that unbelief and not doubt is the opposite of faith. He writes, and I quote, Unbelief is a willful choice not to believe even after the questions have been answered. But doubt, he writes, well, that's different. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. Now, it may surprise you to know how often this kind of doubt is expressed in the Bible. I mean, consider the first words of Psalm chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Have you ever prayed that way? I know I have. And by the way, are you shocked when I confess that to you? Well, listen to the words of Psalm 70, 2-3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And today I want to address the issue of doubt by looking at a man whom Jesus called the greatest man ever born. His name is John the Baptist. But before I get into why he doubted and what that means, let me assure you that after we've understood his doubt, we might be in a place to understand our own. So let's read Matthew 11, 1 to 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
You know, the first verse connects our text to what's gone before. Jesus has been teaching his disciples, and if they are to follow him, they must expect suffering and death. But this teaching has a context. Matthew wants us, his readers, to see that that Jesus really is the long-expected Messiah. He's the rightful king of the Jews and of the world. Matthew does that by showing us an impressive list of miracles that Jesus has accomplished. And all of that lent credence to the idea that Jesus is who Matthew is telling us he is. And then comes a very difficult passage, Matthew 10. Jesus sends his disciples on mission and promises them not a smashing success, but rather he's throwing them like helpless sheep into a wolf pack. They're going to be torn to pieces. And that brings us to John the Baptist languishing in prison. And you know the story. I mean, eventually he's going to be beheaded. This story is not going to end well like so many movies do. You know, the good guys vindicated and and good triumphs over evil. No, no, this story will end the way real life often ends. A wicked, powerful man wins and the prophet of God loses. But before I get to that, let's take a step back. We need to go all the way back to the first place we met John the Baptist at the beginning of this book. I'm reading Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we need to move forward to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Matthew 4, 17 says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let's notice that the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, you know, the the two phrases are synonymous. Well, that's the central message of the book of Matthew. Jesus preached it, and John the Baptist saw his ministry as being the forerunner to the kingdom of heaven arriving on earth. So let's make sure we all understand what's being said. First, would you notice that a kingdom, any kingdom, is a country or a territory or state that's ruled by a king? So if the announcement is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it must mean that God's king is about to enter the world and God is about to rule this world. Now, in truth, God has always been ruling this world. And so we like to say God is sovereign. That means he governs over everything. Even evil in the long term will serve his eternal purposes. But the kingdom of heaven signals a new era in which evil is defeated and God's perfect righteous rule is now at work. And that's what John has been announcing. The end of the present era is before us, and God's rule is about to break in. And John meant that God was about to set up his kingdom. Yeah, in the past, God used evil to serve his long-term purposes, but that era was about to end now. The righteous were going to be blessed. They would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and the wicked, Well, they were going to be thrown into the place of eternal burning. Theirs was a baptism of fire. See, in Matthew 3, verse 10, John says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, John had a vision of a great God with an axe in his hand coming in front of a great tree called evil. He's going to cut it down. And everyone who found his or her shade in that evil tree would fall along with the tree. See, all that would happen, said John, when the Messiah, the great king, arrived, and he's just about here. And then came Jesus in the middle of John's baptism, where sinners were coming to be baptized and were fleeing the coming wrath. The day when the axe was about to be swung, there comes Jesus. 
And of all things, he's going to be baptized. And, and John's confused, and he says to Jesus, listen, I should be baptized by you. And furthermore, when you read John's gospel, John says that from that time on, whenever John the Baptist saw Jesus, he would say, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, this is the one I spoke about. This is the one, it's he. See, I can imagine John in that day, wow, full of faith, full of expectation, no doubts whatsoever, excited to share the gospel of the kingdom, a preacher you'd want to hear. These were the very best days of his life. These were miraculous days. But then problems began to develop. I mean, the first was John's condemnation of Herod Antipas, demanding that King Herod repent along with everyone else. You see, Herod had stolen his brother Philip's wife, and then he had married her. And John said, when the ax chops down the tree, Herod's not going to escape. He'll get chopped down as well. And Herod responded by arresting John and throwing him into prison. You know, it was the ancient Jewish historian Josephus who said that that John was locked up in a fortress, in the fortress of Macarius, and that was about seven kilometers east of the Dead Sea. Now, it would have been both a resort for the king, but it would have contained a very gloomy dungeon as well. And by the time we get to Matthew 11, John would most likely have been locked up there for a little over a year. And he would have been allowed visitors, but his fate was not in the hands of the courts or of some form of a legal system. Rather, he was subject to the whim of an evil king. See, evil continues. John is hearing no chopping sound. All things continue as they always have been. Where then is the kingdom of heaven? Well, the second problem John would have had is reported in Matthew 9, verse 14. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? You have to see life from the perspective of both John and his followers. They're fasting, they're suffering, and Jesus, well, he seems to be having a party with Matthew, the tax collector, and his friends, and a lot of other people as well. You know, he seems to be partying instead of taking seriously the onset of the kingdom of heaven and the need for austerity and repentance. I mean, what's to be made of all of that? April 28th to May 6th, 2019, we invite you to join Back to the Bible Canada on our 2019 Israel Experience with Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and special worship and musical artist John Buller, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Touch, see, and experience the journeys of Paul and David and walk where Jesus walked. This will be a unique, intimate experience of Israel like no other. But time is running short and the guest list is near full. So if you've been planning on visiting Israel and seeing so many of the sites of the Bible, register today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visiting backtothebible.ca. And special note, we'll also be offering an optional and exclusive tour of Jordan immediately following the Israel experience accompanied by Dr. Neufeld. So call today and avoid any disappointment at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. You know, from a careful study of our text, we notice two things. You know, first, John doesn't witness what Jesus is doing. Rather, he's suffering through his imprisonment. He doesn't see people rejoicing. He only sees the cruelty of his captors. And second, notice how Matthew, who reports this matter, puts it. He speaks of the deeds of the Christ. 
You know, from Matthew's perspective, there's no doubt about what Jesus is doing. This, says Matthew, is the work of the Messiah, the king who ushers in the kingdom of heaven. But John's been wrestling with his doubts. If this is the Messiah and the axe is now laid at the root of the trees, well, one thing is sure, this man is not swinging the axe. Now, there's an answer to that question. And for my part, I think the answer is given to us in Matthew 13. But Jesus, for his part, will not give John that answer now. He understands fully that this may not be the time for that answer. Long before we get to Matthew 13, we have Matthew 11. And this passage must be faced full on. Matthew wants us to wrestle with it in just the manner in which John wrestles with it. He wants us to face fully our doubts. And I put it this way. Shouldn't we expect God to keep his promises? And yet, it seems as if he's very slow in fulfilling them. You know, the reason I put it that way, well, that's simple. John is a prophet, and Jesus, for his part, acknowledges that in in the next section of this chapter. But John knows that God has promised a new world where evil cannot dwell, and where righteousness flourishes. I'm faced again with Lewis Smead's problem. The promise of a new world is no nearer now, 2,000 years after John. Should God not keep his promises? If he's God, it must be so. We have to face that matter. You know, I think of sickness and death and evil and war and natural disasters and personal despair that we sometimes feel. We're not wrong to struggle with that and and wonder how God can simply allow these matters to remain unchallenged. Why do the wicked sometimes prosper? Why do the righteous sometimes suffer? And if Jesus is the great long-expected Messiah, does this claim seem congruent with what so many of us are facing? Is he really the one we should expect? Or or should we, like the Orthodox Jews of our day, say, well, you know, just wait, look for another? Just before we get too far down the road on this matter, do we really see things as clearly as we pretend to see them? Because as you and I know, The two events John spoke of, the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of fire, well, those two events are really promised by God. And John was right to announce both of them. But sometimes seeing things this way doesn't yet mean that we understand all that there is to understand. See, imagine you're looking at a pair of mountain ranges through a telescope. And that's because they're still some distance away. And and as you view them, you describe both of them accurately. And all that you say about them is true. But when you get close to them, to your surprise, you find out that the two ranges are separated by a very large and spacious valley. There's a great deal of distance between them, and you hadn't foreseen it. Here's what I mean to say. Should God be forced to fulfill his promises on our timetable or on his? You know, for some of us, the darkest of our doubts have come because God has not acted according to our expectations. So let me quote again from Oz Guinness in his book, God in the Dark. He says, sometimes when I listen to people who say they've lost their faith, I'm far less surprised than they expect. If their view of God is what they say, then it's only surprising that they didn't reject him much earlier. This is especially true of those people who argue that God always heals when we're sick and he always rescues us from financial collapse and he always gets us out from under a difficult boss and he always rescues our marriage when, when we're struggling and he always cures our emotions when we're sick and, and he always raises up those who have fallen. You know, if that's what you believe, I'm not surprised if you tell me that you can no longer believe You know, if that's your view of God, well, I think you do well in stopping believing in that kind of a God. And Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. 
So you should be surprised when you don't have trouble rather than when you do. You know, I suspect that John Bunyan was right in, in his book, Pilgrim's Progress, when he depicted the road to the celestial city as a treacherous, dangerous path, which has shipwrecked many a soul. See, the problem so many of us have is that we have not listened when such a thing has been explained, and so we're caught in a great chasm of doubt. And that's not to say that John was wrong when when he expected the great king to, to pick up the axe and chop down the tree. But we do well if we remember that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. Now then, how does Jesus answer John? Well, obviously, he didn't answer him by getting him out of prison or by destroying Herod Antipas on the spot. Of course he could have done that. The miracles that Matthew has described in which all of nature obeys him, well, and the demons tremble. And Jesus had the power. But notice he doesn't tell John that he has the power. Rather, look again at verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Here's the question. What kind of an answer is that? I mean, first off, remember that John was quite familiar with Scripture. And what Jesus is alluding to is a passage that comes from Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's it, Isaiah, what happen when the kingdom of heaven arrives. That's more. Isaiah never said anything about raising the dead, and in essence, Jesus was saying that he was doing more in his ministry than even Isaiah expected. A word needs also to be said about preaching the gospel to the poor. And normally we think of good news, the gospel, as the glad news that Jesus died for our sins. But, but at this time, since that hadn't happened yet, what Jesus is referring to here is that the most hopeless and destitute in Israel would have seen his message as a message of great comfort and hope. But we might ask, what does that mean? How is this an answer to John languishing in prison? And how about us, 2,000 years later? I mean, how does an examination of the miracles of Jesus banish our blackest doubts and our fears? How is it that the life of Jesus can help me face my darkest doubts and help me to believe? Well, imagine it from John's perspective. His messengers come back and tell John, I don't know the answers to some of our questions, but this man has done such extraordinary things. It's impossible to deny that what is being done in our day is indeed the breaking in of the kingdom of heaven. So how might that have encouraged John? We're not told how this message was received by him, only that it was given and only that Jesus thought it was enough. But why was it enough? Well, that would depend on what John was hoping for. See, if his hope was for ease and the end of his personal troubles, then he had no answer at all. But if his entire life was taken up in God and in his glory, then the answer would be right in front of him. God is right now keeping his promises because right now the kingdom of heaven has begun to break in. And what does that mean to us? See, what happens to us when the cancer is back and when the job is lost and when wicked men seem to have their way? Listen, my friend, your question is not why the axe is not chopping the tree down. Your question should be, is there evidence that one day the axe will indeed chop the evil tree down? Are there reasons to trust that God keeps his promises? Now, not why doesn't he heal me personally or take away the pain, but rather, is he the one who was to come? 
See, for John, Jesus provides him with all the evidence, both the promises in the Old Testament and the fulfillment of those promises in his ministry. See, at some point in time, every one of us need to get beyond our personal crises and come to answer a question. Is the identity of Jesus enough for you? Listen, the evidence for the identity of Jesus, that is, he is the one who has authority over all things, even death and the judgment to come, and the reward of heaven. That's his authority. If you can settle that, you know, you can in the present hour suffer in a dungeon because you know that the one who has come is the one who has conquered death itself. Look again at verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You ever wonder why Jesus said that? See, for John, he would need to get beyond the fact that Jesus was eating and drinking with sinners like Matthew. Jesus' ministry was going to offer mercy to sinners. Before the judgment came, before that ax started chopping, people like Matthew would receive mercy. And if that's what Jesus was doing, then in the present hour, John could remain in prison. But his prison would never be hopeless again. And neither will yours be. If you learn to put your confidence truly in Jesus and in his identity, you can suffer through any problem that you go through today knowing this, that in the end, Christ's purposes will be done in the world and in your life. Have hope and believe. John, thanks so much for your message today. A quick question, though. You know, as you look forward into the next days and months and years, sometimes we move forward with a lot of doubt and uh, concern upon our hearts that things aren't going to change. How would you encourage people in these doubts? Yeah, I I know that um, so many of us are sometimes overwhelmed. And and I I do think I have a word for this, Ben. And and the word is that some of us live by what, you know, has been called realized eschatology. We we think of the promises that God has given for the end of time, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, and when all things are made new, and, and all the tears are wiped away, and all these things are made new. And then we ask God, why is that not happening today? And uh, that's many of our struggles. And I think part of the answer is, look, we're not in Zion now. We are marching to Zion. However, God has given us all the indication that his promises are true, and he has done something in the present hour, and you ought to note that as well. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Matthew, Mysteries of the Kingdom, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. A special thank you to all those who graciously supported the Back to the Bible year-end campaign. Your gift in December is critical to launching the ministry into the new year. It supports the daily program, all of our online and print ministries, and the privilege we have to support Bible teaching internationally, and so much more. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt, and the entire ministry team here at Back to the Bible Canada, a huge expression of our gratitude. Thank you for allowing this ministry to engage more people in more ways with the truth of God's Word in 2019. Lives are being changed, and you play an important part in all that takes place. If you'd like to continue to support the ministry or would like to know more about all the resources available, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.